the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raise, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. I'm running solo today because of the Thanksgiving recess, so to speak. Beth is, you know, cooking. For those of you who don't know about the show, the show's in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law, at least usually we do. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, if you want to learn about estate planning, you can attend one of our seminars this next week. On Monday, December 2nd, I'm going to be at the Greenhouse Cafe on 3rd Avenue in Brooklyn. The times we're doing our seminars are 11 o'clock, 11 a.m., 3 p.m., 7 p.m. That's Monday, December 2nd at the Greenhouse Cafe at 7717 3rd Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. On Thursday, December 5th, we're doing our seminars in Bayside at the Atria Hotel at 221 221-17 Northern Boulevard. That's Thursday, December 5th. Again, we're doing three seminars, as Joe Piscopo likes to say, three shows. 1 at 11, 1 at 3, 1 at 7 p.m. So if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, please feel free to register for one of those seminars. Our phone number to register is 718-238-6500. Admission is free. We just like to get an idea of how many people are there so we can set up properly so everybody's reasonably comfortable during our seminar. And in our seminar, you know, a main part of what we talk about is how do I pass the house to my children? How do I get the house to my children protected from nursing home bills, get it out tax-free, and avoid probate, avoid going through court. And and that's what, you know, about half of our seminar almost is dealing with. How to protect your house, your co-op, your house, your condo, from medical bills, nursing home bills, avoid probate, and get it out tax-free. And that's what we're going to be talking about at the seminars. Now, ordinarily, we take some email questions or whatever. Today, we're going to be a little bit different because we have a special guest on. Those of you know that we do a lot of our taping recording from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And our next guest used to be, used to live in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and he pro- pitched for a team called the Brooklyn Dodgers. So our guest is Carl Erskine, who played in the late 40s to the late 50s. He pitched his entire career for first the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he pitched a couple of years in Los Angeles for the L.A. Dodgers. But his claim to fame was when he pitched in Brooklyn. In the 1953 World Series, he beat the Yankees in one game. He struck out 14 Yankees, which was a record until Sandy Koufax broke it 10 years later when 
Carl Erskine was in the uh, the box. And, and and one of the things, you know, I've mentioned this interview to a lot of people who live in Bay Ridge, and a lot of people remember Carl Erskine because he used to live out here in Bay Ridge. He was part of the neighborhood. He used to come back and visit after the Dodgers moved to L.A. He was originally from Indiana, which we'll find out in the interview. But it brought back a lot of fond memories for me. Again, Bay Ridge in the 1950s. Carl Erskine lived near Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn. He's a great guy. And and those people who remember him from that time all said he, you know, he was a great guy. I'm looking fondly to this interview. Carl Erskine, who played on the 1955 World Series champion Brooklyn Dodgers. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking to Carl Erskine. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, December 2nd at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Brooklyn, New York at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. And then on Thursday, December 5th at The Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718 718- 818-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com That's connorsandsullivan.com Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As a lot of you know out there, we do our taping and broadcasting from Fifth Avenue in Bayridge, Brooklyn. So we have this affinity for old Brooklyn Dodgers, and over the years we brought a few back. But we're very pleased today to have one of the mainstays of the Brooklyn Dodgers in the, in the late 40s into the 50s. In fact, he stayed with the Dodgers a little bit when they went to Los Angeles. But one of the heroes of the 1953 World Series, Carl Erskine. Welcome to the show, Carl. Hey there. You know, what's wonderful is to hear not only from Brooklyn, but Bay Ridge. <laughs> Why Bay Ridge? Where I lived for a few years, you bet. So what do you remember about Bay Ridge? Well, Betty and I were from Anderson, Indiana, which... It's a small community in the middle of uh, Indiana, and coming to Brooklyn, the big city, uh, was overwhelming. But once we got settled into Bay Ridge, uh, it was like a small town. We we knew the we knew the barber and the and the uh, uh, where the butcher was and the bakery and the deli was all <laughs> right there. And uh, so 
quickly we felt really at home in Brooklyn, in Bay Ridge. Let's go back a little bit in time. You were in the service during World War II. How did you get involved in professional baseball? Well, when I graduated from high school, I'd uh, been scouted by several scouts during my junior and senior year. But as soon as I graduated uh, in 1945, I got drafted into the Navy uh, because the war was hot in the South Pacific. And um, I had a brother in the South Pacific. Uh, we didn't know where he was, actually. But um, so I, I got my uh, boot training in upstate New York because uh, Great Lakes Naval Station was uh, quarantined for some something. Scarlet fever, I think it was. So I went to a temporary war, a war uh, time uh, training center on the Great Lakes, uh, and uh, I think it was Lake Geneva. That's where I got my boot training in the Navy. And then I was scheduled to uh, go out on a carrier, and about a week before we were leaving on the carrier, the bombs were dropped in Japan. And immediately, everybody's orders uh, were halted and uh, stay where you stay where you are. And then eventually, that led me to be uh, sent to uh, Boston uh, Navy Yard. And uh, I spent the rest of my uh, Navy career in, in the Boston Navy Yard. Now, how'd you get into baseball? The Branch Rickey was the general manager of the Dodgers back then, right? Right. Yeah, here's a, here's a quick story. Uh, they scouted me in high school, and when I uh, before I got uh, drafted in the Navy, uh, when I was a senior, the Dodgers invited me to come to Ebbets Field and work out, and uh, I got to do that. And I spent a week in New York, uh, and they showed me this big city, and I worked out every day with the Dodgers, and that put the hook in me. I I didn't want to play for anybody else after that. But then I had to go in the Navy. So a couple years later, in, uh, uh, this would have been in, I was still in the Navy, as a matter of fact. And Mr. Rickey came to the All-Star Game in 1946, was in Boston. And he invited my parents to come to the All-Star Game. And we met in the Kenmore Hotel the night before the 46 All-Star Game. Uh, my dad, mother, and me with Mr. Rickey. And he signed me that night uh, to my first contract. Uh, I, I was discharged a couple weeks later, and I went out and played a very short uh, season uh, in the minors, uh, Danville, Illinois, uh, because the season was almost over by the time I got out of the Navy. So after I got home, uh, the commissioner of baseball called me, and he said, uh, son, I want you and your father to come to my office in Cincinnati uh, next Tuesday at 10 o'clock. So my dad laid off work, and we went to Cincinnati not knowing anything about what might happen here. And the commissioner said, son, uh, the Dodgers violated a directive. They signed you before you were out of the military. And uh, that was uh, that was a wrongful act on part of the Dodgers. So I want to declare you a free agent. Now, Mr. Rickey had given me a $3,500 bonus, and so he was on the phone asking uh, the commissioner, what about what about the bonus? And uh, the commissioner told him, that's up to the boy, whatever he wants 
thinks is fair. Anyway, after that, I talked to Mr. Ricky, and I said, I, I do want to resign. They didn't, they didn't bar the Dodgers from resigning me, but they said, you can sign with anybody. Uh, but I wanted to play for the Dodgers, so I told Mr. Ricky, if you give me another $5,000, I'll sign with the Dodgers. So he gave me a, uh, two bonuses, <laughs> and Mr. Ricky was known to be tight with the money. But uh, when I told Dizzy Dean, who was a broadcaster after I pitched a no-hitter against the Giants, he had me on the air, and he said, who signed you? And I said, Branch Ricky. He said, he's the cheapest man ever lived. And I said, well, he gave me two bonuses. <laughs> so uh, he turned to the uh, he turned to the uh, camera, and he said, now this, this boy right here deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Not because... Uh, not because he uh, pitched no two no hitters, he got two bonuses from Branch Rickey. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I went down in the history book as getting two bonuses from Mr. Rickey, but it helped me to play for one of the world. And uh, boy, was I fortunate! It turned out that way. Some of the younger people, by younger, even people under you know fifty or sixty, may not even remember one that was a team in Brooklyn. And number two, the Brooklyn Dodgers of the late forties and early fifties, they were almost in every pennant race. And I know you had a couple of heartbreaks there in uh, fifty and fifty one. Oh yeah, one of the most bitter experiences of my career was to lose in nineteen fifty one. We had a thirteen and a half game lead in August, and one of the great teams too, and. Uh, they, the Giants began to catch us and finally tied us at the end of the season. And the National League had a rule if uh, teams tied, there would be a playoff of two out of three. Now, so we got tied at the end of the season, and the playoffs uh, started in Brooklyn. Uh, our manager, on the flip of the coin, could decide to play the first game on the road and the next two games at home. But he decided to play the first game at home, and we got beat by the Giants, I think, two or three to one. And then the next two games are going to be in the polar grounds. And um, Clem Labine set the Giants out for the second game. Now the third game was for the pennant, for the whole ball of wax. And that's the game that Bobby Thompson hit the shot, heard around the world, and beat us. And it was a bitter pill. My goodness, how could we uh, upset our fans again, not bring home the pennant after having that kind of a lead? But that's what happened. And uh, the amazing thing about that team, uh, we could have really collapsed after uh, a bitter pill to swallow. But after the 51 season 52 we won the pennant 53 we won it 55 we won the pennant and the series 56 again we won the pennant so uh, that team was so good uh that that even that bitter pill uh didn't shut them down to have a great run after that now when bobby thompson hit the home run off ralph branca where were you i was in the bullpen i'd been throwing alongside of branca and when the phone call came uh, to the bullpen from Charlie Dressen, our coach, Clyde Sukaforth, answered the 
phone, and Dresden must have asked him if we were ready. And I heard him say, they're both ready. And Henry must have asked him, uh, who's throwing the best? So Sukiforth said, uh, they both they both had good stuff, but Erskine's bouncing his curveball. Uh, Dresden said, let me have Branca. <laughs> well, tongue-in-cheek, I said, that was probably my best pitch in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, we need to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking to former Dodger great Carl Erskine. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. When a desperate parent calls YCS, seeking help for their child with special needs, we are there to answer the call. Our staff provides compassionate care to children affected by trauma, autism, or developmental disabilities. Can you help us provide the services needed to keep families together? Find out how you, your company, or organization can volunteer. Learn more at YCS.org. Take me out to the ball game. Let's Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with a crowd. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're in the Connors Corner segment of our show. We're talking to Carl Erskine, a pitcher who won 120 games for the Brooklyn Dodgers, once struck out 14 Yankees in a World Series game, pitched two no-hitters in his major league career, and we're sharing memories with Carl Erskine. Now, in 1953, you had a pretty good game in the World Series. Can you tell us about that? Well, I was 20-6 uh, and six that year and led the league in uh, percentage, and so I was scheduled to open the 53 World Series in Yankee Stadium. So I was fine. I had no problem. I was, uh, I'd was i had a lot of arm trouble, but at that time my arm felt, felt good. I was throwing well. And um, so I started the game, and lo and behold, I was a little wild the first inning, and I think Billy Martin tripled <laughs> off of me in the first inning and knocked me out before I ever got a chance to pitch the game. So um, Dresden took me out, but he said to me, uh, you didn't throw a lot of pitches, so I'm going to start you again in the third game. There's no travel day in New York with the two teams 
uh, game. Now, we'd already lost the first game and the second game in Yankee Stadium. So Duke Snyder was my roommate, and I told Duke when I went out to warm up, I said, Duke, you know, I was supposed to get three starts in this game, this series, and I've already blown one of them. I got a pitch like there's no tomorrow today and try to get us back in this series. So that day I did have extra determination. I don't think I ever felt more determined in, to uh, kind of come back from a defeat. And I've often told kids a defeat can be a great motivator. If it's so bitter, you don't want it to happen again. So I started pitching that game. It was a tight game. Uh, it went one-to-one and uh, two-to-two late in the game. But I had good stuff, and Campy, uh, he'd move his glove. I'd hit it. Uh, I had a good curveball that day. I didn't know how many strikeouts I had. But in the ninth inning, I struck out Bullwig, and then they sent it big Johnny Mize. He was my nemesis. He'd hit a couple home runs off of me earlier in the uh, seasons before. But I was fortunate to have a good, a good curveball and kept it in the right place. I struck Mize out. I didn't hear the announcement about the record. Uh, Joe Collins was the next hitter, and he grounded out to me to end the game. So I went in the clubhouse, and Preacher Rowe, one of our pitchers, came over to me and said, Carl, he parted the writers were all around my locker. He parted the writers and said, Carl, do you realize you set a record today of 14 strikeouts? I said, you know, Preacher... I never knew how many strikeouts I had, but uh, but I did have that many. And boy, what a overwhelming thrill to own a record in the World Series! That that was so beyond my expectation in my career. But uh, I just had good stuff that day, and uh, and and it was on uh, October second, in 1953. Ten years later, October second, 1963. I sat in the stands at uh, Yankee Stadium and watched Koufax strike out 15. So, so I had the record exactly 10 years. <laughs> well, it's still a great record to have. Let, let me ask you, what was it like playing in the World Series back then, Yankees-Dodgers? You know, the World Series was an atmosphere that was really up there. People dressed. It was like the Easter parade at a World Series. Women dressed in furs, women dressed up in hats, men shirts, shirts and ties, uh, suits. It was it was really a classy uh, experience in the World Series in those days. And playing a World Series in Brooklyn, there was no travel day between uh, the Yankees and the Dodgers. We had such a strong team, offense and defense. Uh, we probably didn't have as deep a pitching staff as the Yankees maybe had, but we never went into a World Series feeling like we were the underdogs. We always felt like it was going to be uh, our our day to win. And then, for some strange reason, like it happens in sports, it took us it took us forever to finally beat the Yankees in a four out of seven World Series. But that happened in 55, of course. And I'll tell you what, Brooklyn was always kind of a second-class citizen in baseball. 
the, the big Yankees and the, and the strong Giants in the same city. Uh, but that 55 series, that elevated the Dodgers into having a classy team with real respect. And uh, so I was extremely fortunate to be, be on that team. What did it feel like for you as a player when the team moved to Los Angeles? Well, it was mixed. Uh, it was a mixed bag. Uh, those of us who had had our best years in Brooklyn, I came up in '48. I think I won 118 games in Brooklyn, and I had some of my best days at Evans Field. And moving west, I was at the end, toward the end of my career, as was Pee Wee Duke. Gil Hodges, of course, Campy had been injured that winter. He was now uh, paralyzed from his neck down from an auto injury. So, And Jackie had already retired at the end of the 56 season. So in 58, when we moved to uh, Los Angeles, uh, the two guys that loved the, the move, or maybe three, was Koufax, who was a rookie in 55, and Drysdale, who came to us in 56. Those two players were, their best years were yet to come. And young Johnny Padres, who was uh, the the hero in the the 55 series, winning two games. Uh, They all three were more or less at the beginning of a, a real outstanding Hall of Fame career. The rest of us, we were like, uh, these people don't know who they, who we are. <laughs> we got to prove it all over again. So it was a tough move for the what you would call the boys of summer. Is there one memory, let's say, forget the World Series or anything else, that you want to, uh, one story you can tell us about pitching in Brooklyn or your teammates or, or anything else? Well, of course, I said Brooklyn got to be a very close-knitted uh neighborhood and if I'd pitch a good ball game uh in Brooklyn I come out to Lafayette Walk which I remember was between third and fourth avenue in Brooklyn in Bay Ridge. Um uh, lived at Lafayette Walk. When I come home after the ball game, normally a day game, uh the neighborhood would re- decorate the trees with balloons and whatever uh, they make a big celebration, have a street dance, <laughs> uh, all that for a win in Brooklyn. So those were those were precious times. Uh, our babysitters uh, came from the neighborhood. Uh, we knew all, knew a lot of the neighbors. I've told a story many times about Abe Myerson. Abe Myerson owned a deli uh, just near near us, just down the block. And if I pitch win or lose, he was at my door the next day with two bags of deli groceries. And he'd say, I'd say, Abe, you can't, let me pay you. No, you can't give it, you can't pay, you shouldn't pay anything in Brooklyn. You're one of the Dodgers. <laughs> so that was kind of a close knit neighborhood we had in, in Bay Ridge. So that was very special. Now, here's one thing I just want to make a comment. You pitched your entire career for the Dodgers, no other organization. That doesn't happen much today. Well, we didn't have free agency in those days. Under, in the, under the old rules in the contracts called a reserve clause, 
the team that signed you officially and technically owns you forever. Uh, the only way you could be freed if the club uh, traded you, released you, uh, sold you or something. But we had no individual rights as a player. We were to stay with the same team until they, the, the club, decided to either trade or sell you or release you. So, yes, I was fortunate. I, I don't believe in my 12th season I was ever under the threat even of being traded. And believe me, that's a, a big plus for a family, uh, a player who has uh, a wife and children, to not have to move to various cities and trades uh, in baseball. And there were a lot of them because the Dodgers had so many players under contract. Uh, Mr. Ricky had the farm system. It was 26 farm teams. Uh, all the way from the lowest level, all the way up through AAA to the majors. And so he had tons of players. And so if you didn't do well, uh, if you didn't, if you weren't productive, uh, you got either sent back to the minors or traded. So there was a lot of movement of guys going and coming. And I was fortunate. I felt like that I never was under the threat of being sold or traded. What did you do after after your baseball career was over? I, I had a couple of offers. Uh, there was baseball exp expansion was uh, underway, and uh, I had a couple of uh, the Mets. You know, were uh, early '60s when that franchise was developed. So the Mets offered me uh, a pitching coach contract. Uh, actually, the New York Mets were trying to get as many former New York New York players. Uh, to fill their rosters, and so I was offered a coaching job, and then I was offered the broadcasting job that Kiner, Ralph Kiner, ended up taking that job, and he was there for a long time. Um, <laughs> Forever. Yeah, he was, and uh, Kiner was a class guy, and uh, I used to kid him because he hit a home run or two off of me, and uh, I said, Ralph, please, don't send a cab for me when you come to town. I'll get to the ballpark. You don't have to make sure I get there. But he was a—he was one of my nemesis. But uh, yeah, so those offers were coming fast and furious. Uh, and an agency ad agency called me one day and said, uh, "Phillips Van Hughes and his shirt company—they're interested in talking to you about a, a position with them." So I went and checked it out, and uh, they did offer me a real good contract. They were developing, uh, they were a white shirt house. They were developing a pleasure wear division and asked me if I would come and be trained to head that division and hire other retired players of any sport. So Andy Robustelli is a name maybe you don't know, but played for the New York Giants. Giants. football. Yeah. yeah. He was one. Yeah, football Giants. Yeah, and uh, Jerry Coleman of the Yankees was one. Jim Hearn of, of, the, uh, of the Giants. Giants, New York Giants. Yeah, so that was their concept. So I was, I was already started in the training there. They offered me a real good contract. And then my fourth child was born, Jimmy, uh, in April of that year, at my first spring out. And Jimmy was Down syndrome. So that was a big shocker, and 
it really it really made it difficult to think about pulling up stakes in Anderson, Indiana, where my parents lived and my wife's parents lived. And so I had to tell Phillips Van Heusen that I was going to have to opt out of that opportunity because I just couldn't be on the road that much anymore with four kids all under 12 years old and Jimmy being a special child. So we decided to stay in Anderson, Indiana. So I developed an insurance business first. Then a bank came to town, offered me a chance to be on the board. And eventually I went in the bank, went through the chairs over the next 10 or 12 years, and I became president of the bank for the next 11 years. So I ended up <laughs> a banker, which I never expected to, to be. But I did stay right here in my hometown of, of Anderson, Indiana. Carl, again, we need to take a short break. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. 6500 or com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. From our family to yours, I wish you a happy and healthy new year. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer. With me, Mike Connors, we're talking to Dodger pitching great Carl Erskine. Okay, listen, some of us older guys here in New York, especially in Brooklyn, remember the boys this summer. And we thank you for what you brought to the history of Brooklyn. 1955, it's part of history. You can't take it away. And you guys were, you guys did it for us. Well, you know, something happened recently that I'm extremely proud of, and I would like for everybody in Brooklyn to know that I have a great-granddaughter, two years old. My grandson said, "Uh, Grandpa, I've got two little boys, but if I ever have a girl, I'm going to name her Brooklyn. So I have a granddaughter, great-granddaughter named Brooklyn. And there's a little newspaper in Brooklyn 
called the uh, no, 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 it's a Catholic publication. Uh, the tablet. The tablet. That's it. Yes. And uh, the writer there, uh, Jim Moreni, Moreni, um, I got in contact with him. I sent him a picture of me and my great granddaughter, uh, Brooklyn, and uh, he published it just about the last oh, three or four weeks. And I'd love for everybody in Brooklyn to know that I have a great granddaughter named Brooklyn. Uh, because that's that's a very uh, personal tie with me and the borough, and uh, so I was very very proud to be a Brooklyn Dodger. Well, Brooklyn fans were very proud to have you as a Dodger. Well, you know, I knew a lot of fans uh, playing ten. I played ten seasons in Brooklyn. I uh, got acquainted with a lot of people because I was a Brooklyn Dodger. Uh, there were a lot of fans that I, in one capacity or another, uh, and I still get lots of mail. I can't believe it. Uh, I'm, I'll be 93 years old in December, so it's many decades ago that I actually got to play in Brooklyn. But uh, those fans write to me, and they some of them don't live in Brooklyn anymore, but they were in Brooklyn at the time I was playing. Uh, I answer all my mail. I, I'm just very de- devoted to the fans that write to me. And uh, so for a skinny kid uh, in Anderson, Indiana, to, to get to play on the big stage uh, and with the greatest team, I think one of the great teams of all time, my catcher, Campy, I must have pitched uh, 1,500 innings to Roy. Uh, my roommate was Duke Snyder. We became close as brothers. And then Jackie became a close friend. Uh, Pee Wee Reese, a very close friend. Gil Hodges was also from Indiana. Uh, one of the neatest things that I remember about Brooklyn, we had an organist named Gladys Gooding, and she was very well known in the music circles in New York. But she would play appropriate songs uh, all, she used to play a lot of uh, appropriate to whatever the batter did or something. But uh, Gil Hodges from uh, Indiana, Erskine from Indiana, whenever Hodges hit a home run or I came in to pitch, she played back home in Indiana. And that was the most played song other than the national anthem in, <laughs> in the 40s and 50s. <laughs> so that was another tie that uh, I had with... Uh, with Brooklyn, and uh, so we had uh, like the butcher Joe Rossi. Uh, I used to know. I used to go to New York after my playing days, and I always called Joe Rossi and said, "Joe, could you cut me some more of those Italian uh, uh, veal cutlets?" And uh, he'd meet me to the airport with a ten-pound <laughs> uh, sack all fixed up to carry. And uh, so for years, I had contact with with a lot of uh, people in Brooklyn. Well, you still remembered. A lot of people remember you. Carl, thank you for being on the show. Thank, thank you for sharing your memories. It's really appreciated. And good luck to you. Good luck to your granddaughter, Brooklyn. Well, that's a that's a neat connection for me. And uh, I'll tell you what, I pitched a lot of innings at Evans Field. And uh, some of them weren't uh, the best I had. <laughs> And you get a boo now and then, but you know what? I had such a close 
a feeling with the fans because Ebbets Field was a small ballpark, and you could hear the fans real easy talking to you uh, on the mound. And uh, of course, my name uh, of Erskine was corrupted by the Brooklyn A's of Oiskin. But I'd hear the yells from the stands, Oisk, hey, Oisk, throw it through his head. And this was, this was quite, a, uh, uh, quite a culture that was at Evans Field. And most players, most pitchers, hated to come into Evans Field to pitch because it was hardly any foul territory. And the right field was 297. Uh, and so it was a small ballpark. But I, I love to pitch in Brooklyn because our team got a lot of runs at Evans Field. And, and they played great defense as well. But uh, the only thing that, that I ever saw happen that was so remarkable, Stan Musial was one of the great hitters of that era, and he hit in Evans Field. He hit so tremendous that the fans in Evans Field began to cheer uh, the enemy, Musial. <laughs> He's with the Cardinals. But uh, the Evans Field fans gave him the name Stan the Man. And uh, but some of our players were a little irritated at the fans because they cheered Musial so much. <laughs> he was our—he used to be tough on us. But all in all, uh, I went back to Evans Field in 1960, early 60s. They were getting ready to demolish. They had the wrecking crew in, and they had a big wrecking ball painted white and put red stitches on it like a baseball, and. Uh, so they had a ceremony. Campy was there in his wheelchair, and Ralph Branca was there, who lived in the New York area. Uh, and uh, me, so the, the three of us, uh, former players, and they had the ceremony, and finally they swung the big wrecking ball over over the visitor's dugout and dropped it. And it crushed the roof of the dugout. And that dugout, we used to look over there, and uh, that was the enemy in that dugout. But when they when they dropped that ball, I said I gotta go. I, I've seen enough, and I couldn't stay for the rest of the demo, uh, demolishing. But uh, Evans Field uh, it still lives. It's still very vivid to a lot of people who uh, visited there. I get letters from kids ten say, Carl, I was ten years old. The first game I ever saw was at Evans Field with my dad, and. Uh, uh, you pitched a uh, no-hitter, and, and here's the scorecard. You'll send me the actual scorecard, and I'll send it back to him and tell him, you got to keep this yourself. <laughs> you and your dad were at it. So uh, just a lot of carryover. I'm amazed at uh, this time of my life that there's still such a connection and a carryover with, with the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, I almost hate to ask this question, but how many guys are still alive from the 1955 Dodgers? Three. You'll, you won't believe this. Uh, Duke, Duke Snyder and I used to keep track looking at the big <laughs> picture of uh, the championship team. Uh, the, the players that are left, we just lost uh, Newcomb not too many months ago. Yeah. Uh, there, he was a, made it four. But now living, Roger Craig who was a rookie in yeah. 55 and won. He won one of the games uh, of the four in 55. Sandy Koufax, who was a, a rookie in 55, and Erskine. That's the three left, and they're all three pitchers. 
I don't know what that means, but there's just three of us left off of the roster. And that included coaches, manager, uh, trainers, broadcasters, uh, bat boy. They're all gone except those three. Everybody knows Sandy Koufax, but you know, I think one of the remarkable things, Roger Craig has been on the show too. One of the most remarkable things was the number of World Series within, with different teams. Oh, Roger Craig? Yeah, be, between being a co- the Cardinals in 64, being a coach for the Tigers, a uh, manager for the Giants or whatever. Yeah, well, Roger was a real baseball mind. And, you know, he was responsible for a lot of pitchers. Uh, he was a, a great pitching coach. Uh, he'd been a pitcher. There was a time, believe it or not, until the mid-50s, that all pitching coaches used to be catchers. It was an assumption that they could tell what the guy's throwing and so forth. But but only uh, Jim Turner was the first pitcher who became a pitching coach. And he saved two guys that were hard throwers. They were Baltimore, traded from Baltimore with Bob Turley and... Uh, and oh, okay, it's a no hitter in the World Series. Don uh, Larson. Larson. Those two guys were hard throwers, and the Yankees picked them up in a trade. And Jim Turner was the one who helped them change their pitching uh, position. Instead of a windup, they pitched from the belt. Now, that's what you see most pitchers do today. But Jim Turner, a pitching coach, who was a former pitcher, he got Larson and Turley. He he took away all the extraneous motions, pitching from the belt. And they both became, Turley actually became a better pitcher than Larson, but Larson pitched a phenomenal game in 56 in the World Series. So uh, pitching coaches were now dominant in all uh, in all teams, and that introduced the pitching uh, account, uh, the uh, the pitching the pitch count, uh, and some other changes that have happened. That's because pitchers are now coaches in the majors, and they weren't until about the mid 1950s. Who was on your coaching staff for the '55 Dodgers? Everybody knows Alston was the manager, but who were your coaches? Billy Herman. A major leaguer infielder, uh, Joe Becker. Joe Becker was a pitching coach. Uh, we had an old gentleman named Jake Pittler, a first base coach. Uh, I think I think that's I think that's the coaches I remember anyway. Um, I don't want to get off the phone here without saying what a remarkable honor <laughs> I got a surprise that the street was named. Uh, Erskine Street in Brooklyn. I can't. I, I had six guys on my team made the Hall of Fame. I didn't make the Hall of Fame, but I got the best deal. Well, you know, you're driving down the Bell Parkway, and you know, to be honest, you you just talked. I didn't think it was named for you, and I'm sorry. I apologize. But you're driving down the Bell Parkway. It's right there. Well, I Erskine didn't, Street. I didn't know it either until a couple of fans wrote to me and asked me, uh, and I didn't know. I thought it was a coincidence. But a writer in New York uh, was asked a question, was that named after the old pitcher? And he put an article in the paper, which somebody sent to me, and said, yes, uh, that was named after uh, Erskine 
uh, Carl Erskine, the pitcher, uh, because there were several Brooklyn Dodger fans on the safety board or whoever is responsible for naming the streets. And so, yeah, they said yes. That uh, Those Brooklyn fans that had the authority to do it, they named it Erskine Street. So... Right, because if you're driving on the Bell Parkway, I don't know if you do, you pass by the Gil Hodges Memorial Bridge, and a couple of miles later is Erskine Street. Yeah, and you know, Jackie's got a, a bridge or something named after him. Yeah, Interboro. The old Interboro Parkway is now Jackie Robinson Parkway. Yeah, there you go. Well, anyway, oh, that's uh, that, that street and my great-granddaughter, those are two, two ties that I'm extremely proud of. Most players... Don't get to to have the honor that I have received from the Dodger fans in Brooklyn. Okay, well, you deserved it. You had a great career for us pitching here in Brooklyn. Well, I tell you what, I thank the good Lord every day that uh, I was able to. I married my high school sweetheart, and we've been married seventy two years, and I've had and God bless you, kids, grandkids, great grandkids, and you never lose the tag. I don't care how old you get. You never lose a tag uh, if you've been a major league player. And so I am extremely thankful and grateful that I'm just a skinny kid. You know, I wasn't very big. I I was uh, 5'10 and weighed, uh, pitched at about 165. Uh, but I was wiry and durable. Uh, I could pitch uh, extra innings or whatever and uh, was just uh, blessed in dozens of ways. But one of the big blessings is to have me think about how could it be possible that a skinny kid from Anderson, Indiana, end up playing with some of the greatest team members that ever played baseball. I think we had, I believe there was six Hall of Famers on the Dodgers. Uh, I may be counting Alston as a manager, too, but um, but that era... Uh, Quickly, I'll tell you why I say it's the golden era of baseball. There were three teams in New York City. Uh, we went from day ga- night base- day games to night games. We went from trains to planes. We went from radio to TV. It was a, the years of integration uh, with Jackie, and we went from East Coast to West Coast. That all happened in the decade of 47 to 57. And so I claim that as the golden era of baseball. Thanks for the memories. You bet. Thanks for calling me anytime. I appreciate reminiscing with you. That gave me a great feeling. All right. Thank you, Carl. Thank, thank you. you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Carl Erskine for giving us his time to you know bring back memories about Brooklyn and Bay Ridge and the Brooklyn Dodgers. I was really too young to remember the Brooklyn Dodgers moving to L.A. Yeah, I remember it, but it didn't really have any effect on me back then. I wasn't a baseball fan. I was only six years old when when they moved. You know, it did bring back memories. And like I said, a lot of our clients knew who Carl Erskine was, and they remember Carl Erskine fondly. So uh, apparently when people write to Carl Erskine, he writes them back. So he's greatly loved. He's still loved in, in Brooklyn. Again, if you want to learn more about estate planning and elder law, we're going to do our seminars this next week, Monday and Thursday in Brooklyn and Bayside, Queens. Matt will give you the times at the end of the show when we're doing the seminars. If you want a reservation to the seminars, there's no cost. It's free. But we do like to know how many people are going to show up. So if you want to attend one of our seminars, give us a call 
at 718-238-6500. By the way, if you have any questions and you want to email us a question, Chris Cordani, what's the email question? That's askmikethelawyer at gmail.com. Askmikethelawyer at gmail.com. And if you want to like us on Facebook, how do you do that? Just go to Facebook and like the page. The page is Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. You can find a lot of cool stuff there. And, of course, some of our past interviews. If you see it where it says like this page or just like, hit that and you're already there. Now, if you see the uh, little thumbs up and it says liked, you've already liked the page. That's a good thing, too. I'm not big into Facebook or email questions, but if you are, please join us on Facebook or email. Now, in in a few seconds, David Kincaid is going to sing us home on hollowed ground. And the reason we play on hollowed ground, outside of the fact he's a musician, we greatly admire David Kincaid, is that this station is right next to Trinity Church, which is where... Among other people, Alexander Hamilton is buried. So we kind of are on hollowed ground, and we thought it was always fitting to to go out with David Kincaid singing on hollowed ground. If you, you want to learn anything about David Kincaid, put him in your search engine and see what albums he has to sell. He's a great musician. You know, we thank him for sending us home each week. Have a good Thanksgiving weekend. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. To sing this we are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, December 2nd at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 Third Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and then on Thursday, December 5th at The Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Queens, at 11 a.m. 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.